0: Well, before we begin this morning, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and all that we have in Christ and our ability to come to you in prayer. I pray that you would encourage us with your word. Uh, You use the book of James, which you have written uh, for our benefit. Help us to see what you have to say here towards the end of the book. And may it be an encouragement to us to more diligently uh, pray uh, throughout the circumstances of our lives as well as pray for others uh, that we can uh, see your blessings on their lives and your working and you be glorified through answering prayer. Please give us understanding of your word and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year that uh, if you were a college student in many colleges, it was the final exam time. I, I know some schools do the, the end of the semester uh, in, in January, maybe the third week in January, but some schools, like the one that my daughter goes to up at Maranatha, it was exam time right before the semester break. So final exam time is both a challenging and concerning time, many times, but also Uh, there's some measure of hope that the end is near, right? Well, we're at final exam time for the book of James. We are in chapter 5 and verses 13 to 18. I mistakenly gave the wrong numbers for the bulletin, so if you're looking there, uh, it said chapter 3, I think. But we're in chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, and we're essentially seeing the final exam or the final test. If you remember... When we started the book of James, we talked about how this was a book that talked about the tests of a living faith. This is a book that discusses what genuine faith looks like and these various situations in life and circumstances or challenges reveal the genuineness of our faith or therefore the lack of the genuineness of the claimed faith. And the final test that we come to this morning as we look at this section has to do with the test of prayer. So we're going to read verses 13 to 18, and notice the theme here on prayer, which is essentially the final test. Though there are a couple verses that we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week uh, at the conclusion of the book. But this is essentially the final test, and it's focused on the subject of prayer. So let's go ahead and read verses 13 to 18. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So we see here the focus mentioned just about in every verse or multiple times throughout this section is the subject of prayer. And uh, a genuine faith will result in prayer. Uh, the Bible talks about if you've received the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God in your heart cries out, Abba, Father, it's a natural response for a believer to cry out to God whatever the circumstances of life and that's what we're going to see first of all here is that James focuses in on individual prayer. How we should pray as individuals in all the moments of our life. In whatever our circumstances, we as individuals, if we are those that have faith in Christ, we turn to Christ for help in those situations, uh, both when times are good as well as when times are not good. So notice here, first of all, in talking about individual prayer, he focuses in on prayer in trouble. Look at verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. So James here again uses a question, engaging the readers, but also James often uses questions, as we've seen throughout the book, as a change of topic. So James is moving away from what he had discussed in 7 through 12. That of suffering specifically, and and we could uh, uh, see here a connection perhaps with verse 13. He's focusing in on suffering here, and the word he uses here in 13 is related to the word used in 5.10, speaking of the suffering and patience of the prophets, Um, but James is focusing here on praying in times of trouble, and notice he says to the audience, who's his audience? He says, among you. As we talked about, he's writing to various churches. And so the focus here is anyone in the church or the assembly of believers suffering, what should therefore uh, be uh, the response? The response should be prayer. But the circumstance he's focusing in on is suffering. And this idea is that of undergoing hardship or suffering trouble. The idea is external difficulties that... They would be experiencing, that would be causing therefore some challenges in their life, perhaps discouragement and sorrow. And interestingly, we find this theme at the end of the book. you remember how the book started, chapter one? Chapter one, it talked about anyone experiencing trials and trouble, right? So he is essentially creating here bookends on the subject of trials and difficulties, And he is encouraging us here in verse 13 that the response to that situation should be prayer. The response we should have to trouble and difficulty in our life is to go to God. He alone can handle anything that we're facing. We cannot. We cannot handle the trouble and difficulty. And we cannot on our own handle these things that we face and do the right thing in the midst of it, right? A big part of what we talked about in chapter 1 in the response to trials was not just grinning and bearing it. The idea was that we, in the midst of a trial, responded the right way, that we looked at it from God's perspective, knowing that he is accomplishing something good through it. So, James is urging us to go to God because he alone can help us to respond to the difficulty that we're facing in the right way. When we experience trouble and hardship, it is in our human nature to want shortcuts, to want out, or to, uh, depending on where the pressure and the trouble is coming from, if it's persecution, our tendency might be to try and skirt that or avoid that, or compromise to get out of that trouble. But instead of doing those kinds of things, we need to respond the right way. And in order to respond the right way, we need to go to God. But notice the response here as he says, Is anyone among you suffering? He says, Then he must pray. The idea is that we as individuals are responsible to pray for ourselves in the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, it is an important thing as believers that we pray for one another. In fact, that's point number two. But it needs to be understood and clear that we also have responsibility to pray for ourselves. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I have someone in my life who I consider an extremely godly person. And when I'm going through the worst and most difficult times, I run to that person and say, can you please pray for me? Here's what's going on. Now, we need to do that, and we should be those kinds of people for each other. But the emphasis here in point number one is that we need to pray for ourselves too. We need to carry the burdens that God has given us and take those burdens to him. Peter talks about casting your care upon the Lord. He alone is able to take away and resolve and help us through and bear up under that burden. We need to take that to Him. We are individually responsible. And in the circumstances in which we should pray includes when we're in trouble. We need to go to God. That should be our response. It should be our natural response when we experience trouble and hardship to go to Him. Sometimes I watch... TV or watch movies, and what do you see? Many times in this day and age, people have rejected God, and that's uh, in many ways the prevailing uh, viewpoint: is that there either is no God or uh, don't need Him. But uh, many times you see situations on on TV, and and I admit, I, I I sometimes am watching a show and I get into it, and my response is to pray about it. I'm like, wait a minute, this is just a pretend show, right? But the people on the show many times don't do that, do they? But our tendency as believers should be to naturally take it to God. Take it to God when we're experiencing trouble and hardship. But James also points out as individuals, we not only need to pray for trouble, but we also need to talk to God when times are good. That's the second part here in 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? What should you do? in times of joy go to God too again we go to God that's what we need to do in times of joy as well he says he is to sing praises the idea is that of honoring God by praising him during those times of good and joy and when we're overflowing with good emotions that too should be expressed to God and by James here using times of trouble and times of joy, he is talking about emotions on both ends of the spectrum. And therefore, by using an example on either side of it, it means everything in between is also included. So James is saying, whatever the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in, we should go to God. A true believer, one who has faith in Jesus Christ, recognizes our lives are his. So whatever our circumstances, good or bad, difficult or easy, we go to God, we communicate with Him. It should be as natural to us as breathing. We go to God in prayer. We express emotions to Him, whether good uh, or negative. Uh, We talk to God. We individually, though, need to communicate with Him. There's a responsibility for all of us as individuals, whether times are difficult, or whether times are easy, we communicate with God. But notice also, not just individually do we go to God and uh, in times of trouble and difficulty, we also should pray, uh, we should intercede for other believers also. The idea of intercessory prayer is praying on behalf of someone else so that God would work for the benefit of another. So as believers, we not only pray for ourselves and communicate to God about our individual circumstances, but we also should be mindful of one another in the circumstances in which we're going through and upholding one another in such circumstances. And James uses the situation here of sickness to be the occasion for prayer for other believers. Notice in verse 14, he says, Is anyone among you sick? then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and, offer the, the, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So the, prayer, the focus here is on the subject of the person who is sick. But the idea is that we pray for one another. We pray for those who are sick. And again, he uses a question to engage the audience. He's engaging the church here to draw them in. And he's explaining that we need to pray for one another. And particularly here is the concern of someone who is sick. The circumstance now is an internal problem. It's not just the pressures of the outside world. But this individual is weak or diseased. And the idea here... As, as, you, as you read this, is, is that of weakness or being bedridden, but not necessarily of somebody that has a life-threatening illness. Notice it says that the individual is to call for the elders. The idea is they must be called to come to him or her because that person can't go to the assembly, can't go to those people to pray for them. Or to tell them about it. They must be called to come to pray for that individual. But I think in our day and age, and, and a certain religious group has taken this passage and assumed that this only has to do with those who are on their deathbed. But, but do you see anywhere in here where it says the word death or dying? Certainly that could be an application that would be appropriate. But the idea is simply somebody who's sick, somebody who's bedridden. And I think in our day and age, it's a little hard for us to appreciate the significance of it. In our day and age, at least my job, and I believe many of you have jobs that are similar, or, or had jobs that were similar, when you're sick, what do you do? You call in, say, I'm, I'm not gonna be there today. And, and many people have jobs that you, you get so many sick days a year, right? Um, in, our, in our case it's, it's, it's more than a week it's, it's, uh, it's uh, actually 15 days of sick time that we have it's, it's excessive, it's a lot but if, if I get sick, I just stay home and I still get paid it's not a significant risk to me now in Bible days the majority of people, if not all the people if they did not work, they did not get paid Survival required health. They had to be healthy to survive, to provide for their families. Many of them providing their own foods, taking care of the animals or the crops on their own farms or um, whatever work they were doing to, to get income. If they didn't have health, they didn't have income. It was a very significant issue. So the expectation here is that fellow believers are to pray... For this kind of person, person who is sick, someone who is not well, they need uh, healing. And the encouragement is for intercessory prayer. You notice in verse 16, the principle is generalized that we are to pray for one another. He specifically mentions here calling for the elders in verse 14, but ultimately his point is a general one that we as fellow believers need to be praying for one another we need to intercede for one another in this case he calls for the elders what does that mean it doesn't just mean the older people in the church the word elder is another name for the office of pastor so these are the pastors there is a call for the pastors the spiritual leaders of the congregation they are to come and pray for this individual, but notice also, it describes uh, that they are to pray over this individual and anointing that individual with oil as well. Now, again, what it, what does this mean? What is the significance of this? And the the other example that we see in the New Testament of somebody being anointed with oil in a healing situation is Mark chapter six and verse thirteen. Where it talks about individuals being anointed and healed. So the point is not that the oil itself has the power to heal. Notice verse 15, we're told the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, right? So the oil itself isn't medicinal and the oil itself isn't magic. But as we understand, the use of anointing throughout the Scripture. The basic idea is: one who is anointed is one who is set apart. He is, uh, in some ways, set apart, and that setting apart is done by the work of the Spirit of God. If you if you read about the uh, the judges, it talks about how the Spirit of God came upon them. We we read about the anointing of Saul, the king of Israel, and then David, and and in the process. God's Spirit empowers them in a special way to carry on the function of the kingship in in the case of Saul and David. That anointing is a work of the Spirit of God, and the physical oil is simply symbolic of God's anointing, but the idea is they're being set apart for some special purpose for God. Aaron as well and his sons were anointed for the priesthood, right? It was a setting apart. They were specially serving God in some capacity. And I believe the idea here of this anointing is you're setting aside the individual for God to do a special work of healing in their lives. It's symbolic. But the, uh, the idea is that they need to be prayed for. We need to pray that God would, uh, would intervene and that there need to be a special work of God in the case because the sickness has probably been prolonged or is severe and so there is a a need to pray for their healing uh, and recovery but notice the uh, uh, about this prayer there is a promise notice verse 15 what is the promise of the prayer in verse 15 it says the the prayer I'm sorry. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Notice the requirement of this prayer is that it's offered in faith. What does that mean? Does that mean we have to have a super significant amount of trust in this particular case? Or is this uh, some special. Uh, Confidence knowing for certain that God's going to heal this individual, I think the idea is simply like all prayer that we need to be confident in God's ability to hear and answer. So when we pray, like James has said in chapter 1, we don't pray doubting. We understand who God is, we understand His nature, that He is good, and that He is glorified by answering prayer. Therefore, we have confidence in his ability to hear and answer this request. And that's really how we should pray all the time. It does not guarantee, though, just because we have confidence in God's ability to hear and answer, that always will people that we pray for to be restored will be restored. How do we reconcile that? Well, I'm going to say a little bit more about that later, but basically the will of God is a factor... In, in whether they are healed or not. But um, what's required is to pray in faith. What's the result, as he says, will happen here that says the Lord will restore the one who is sick. The idea is literally uh, the word save or uh, sa- what we use for salvation. But that word here does not mean they'll be spiritually saved, Uh, But the idea is they'll be restored. The root idea of the word save is to deliver, to rescue. And the idea is that they'll be rescued from the sickness. They'll be, therefore, raised up. And it says, notice as well, the Lord will forgive his sins. But notice it has a conditional statement on there, and it says, and if he has committed sins. So sickness may be the result of sin. It's possible that God brings chastisement in the life of a believer because of their sinfulness, and that chastisement, that correction, is sickness. And God may then, upon this person confessing and dealing with that sin and people praying for him, God may raise that person up and forgive, cleanse from those sins. But notice it's conditional. Conditional it's not necessarily true if a believer is sick that it's because of their sinfulness it may be true but it might not be so it is worthy of consideration if we're experiencing major sickness to evaluate is there something we've done and some unresolved sin in our lives that we haven't taken care of and we should seek to confess and forsake that and perhaps that alone will be enough for healing to come but it doesn't mean because there's a sickness, we've done something wrong. So it may be, but it may not be. But in, in this case, he says, if he has sinned, those will be forgiven. The assumption being that there has been confession. And this gets to the prerequisite as well of this kind of prayer, is that confession of sins, if that is in the way, is necessary. Notice verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now, confession of sins is necessary. In in the case of someone who's sick, because of their sin, yes, they need to confess and forsake that sin. But it's also necessary for us to have a clear pathway in praying to God, right? David says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, The Lord will not hear me. Our unconfessed sin can hinder our prayers. So we need to be confessing sins one to another uh, and to God. But notice there's an emphasis here also on confessing sins one to another. If you remember through some of the details of this book, one of the things that James has brought up is the conflict, chapter 4, the fighting among them. There may be sickness or there may be spiritual sickness in the congregation due to this uh, selfish conflicts that have come up. And there's a need to confess that one to another. What he is not saying is that we only need to confess all of our sins to one another. We need to confess our sins to God, but when we've wronged somebody else, we need to confess that to them. We need to acknowledge that to one another but also think about this situation it should also be true in a church setting that we as fellow believers brothers and sisters in Christ we should be helping one another and praying for one another if you are overtaken in a sin you should share that with a close brother or sister same gender um, who can help you 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 should be honest with if you're a guy with a brother who can understand the struggles you're going through and pray for you, being honest and transparent about your struggles may be part of what you need to be spiritually healed, to, to get victory in that thing that you're struggling with. So we as fellow believers should be acknowledging our sin to one another. When we've wronged each other for sure, we should make that right with each other. But also, when we're struggling, we should acknowledge that to a close brother or sister who can pray for us that God would bring victory uh, in in our spiritual lives. But also in our physical lives, that there would be healing. It is a common thing that we should pray for the health of one another. At, At our church, there is a regular prayer list that goes out. And on that Wednesdays is when we get together and we pray for one another and we have congregational uh, items listed there, individuals asking for prayer. And it's amazing how many things there are for healing, physical healing and for surgeries and those kinds of things going on. We should pray for those things. We should. And, And we have encouragement from James 5 here. But we should also not miss that our intercessory for one another should also include spiritual struggles and praying for God to bring victory in our lives. So James is urging the readers here, ultimately, to pray for one another. But he also then concludes verse 16 with this short statement about the impact of prayer. Notice the impact of prayer at the end of verse 16. He says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, Notice again, there are requirements. In this case, it's a righteous man. The idea is one who is justified before God. That is, you've confessed your sin, you've trust Christ, you know Him as your Lord and Savior, therefore the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you, therefore you're righteous. This is, the idea here is an ordinary believer, not just the elders, but an ordinary believer. And I think there is also, therefore, especially in light of him talking about confessing sins, that is, a person who's walking in, in obedience, generally speaking, before the Lord. So, a righteous man, to have prayer answered, what does it take? It takes being a believer, being right with God, and uh, having confessed sin. And he describes this kind of prayer also as effective. The idea is that of it's working or it's active, and I believe it's best to just understand this as persistent prayer. Praying until God answers. So the kind of prayer that God answers is going to be an effective prayer, one that is persistent. We continue to pray until God answers. Jesus uses the example of the widow with the unjust judge as an example of this. Remember, the, the judge did not want to take care of the widow in her affliction And she continued to ask him repeatedly until he finally said, she's going to keep bothering me, I just need to get her away and just take care of what she said, so he finally does. Now in contrast to that unjust judge, God is an eager Heavenly Father, eager to answer our prayer and give us the things that we're asking, the things that we need. And yet, we often are quick to give up, aren't we? We need to persist. We need to be effective in prayer. We need to keep on asking. And what does he say will be the result of prayer? This kind of prayer, the result will be it accomplishes much. That is, uh, many things are accomplished by this kind of prayer. There is a lot that can happen in response to this kind of prayer. And notice, though, it says... Uh, about this the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much again there may be reasons why it doesn't one we may not we may have unconfessed sin we may be asking as james talks about in chapter 4 we may be asking for things that are completely contrary to god's will but prayer can accomplish much not because we are great, or we're so eloquent, or we know the beautiful, wonderful things to say, but because we're talking to the creator of the universe. And he can do all things that are consistent with his nature. And then James concludes this, I think by using a powerful illustration about the impact of prayer. What can be accomplished through prayer? And he uses the example here of Elijah, verses 17 and 18. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, you're probably familiar with Elijah. If, if you uh, have, have been in church regularly, which, looking around, most of you, if not all of you, have. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah was someone who spoke boldly for the Lord, confronted kings uh, because of their sin. And we see Elijah cited as an example of prayer, this kind of prayer. But we look at Elijah and we say, well, you know, he's a biblical superhero, right? I mean, he was a prophet. I mean, he stood up to kings. But what does James say about him? His prayer wasn't answered because he was a superhero. His prayer and his praying came from a man. Just like you and me. That's what he says. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Just because he was a prophet didn't give him some higher level access that normal human beings don't have. He was a man like us. What's the point? You can pray, and God can do things like this in your prayers as well. That's the idea. And he says, what, what happened with Elijah's prayer? What, what kind of prayer was this? Well, he says it was an earnest prayer. And uh, the, the idea here is literally, this is, uh, I, I believe, a Hebrewism brought over to the Greek. Essentially, it says he prayed earnestly. That's a translation, but the literal Uh, Use of the word is praying he prayed. And the idea is that of emphasis. And I believe the point is that of intensity. Or earnest is a good translation. He earnestly prayed. He sincerely, intensely prayed for this. And what what was the specific request he asked for and the results? We see the request of what he asked for was that it would not rain. And the result was that it didn't. And he asked that it would rain, and it did. Now, if, if you had an outside wedding reception, you may have prayed on one day that it wouldn't rain. <laughs> have you had that? Have you experienced that? Maybe a, a child or your own wedding, right? We, we've prayed for it not to rain, right? Right? Uh, and there's times where God does answer those kind of prayers. But notice about Elijah, he didn't just pray that it would not rain. What, What does it say? It says he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. It's a drought. It also says he prayed again that it would rain, and notice it says the sky poured rain think there's an emphasis there on purpose it poured rain and the earth as a result of it produced fruit again because there had been a famine and he prayed now i realize i'm dealing with a congregation here that's very familiar with elijah so you may have some reservations about applying elijah to yourself right that your prayers can be answered in significant and dramatic ways like elijah well you might be saying um elijah was a prophet right he uh He was a prophet. So uh, I think James has already pointed out that's not a valid comparison. Elijah and the basis of him praying was that he was a man. He was a believer in the Lord and that was the basis of him praying. And we too, as fellow believers, can pray and seek the Lord. Well, but you might also say, if you know the account, you might also say, well, God said it wasn't going to rain, or God said it was going to rain, so Elijah knew that God was going to do that. So it's easy to pray for that, because God already said it would. He knew it was God's will. Well, it's true that Elijah had specific, unique knowledge of a specific plan of God. But think with me about that he still had to pray for it. He, he could have said, well, God's going God's to make it rain, and so, well, okay, it's time. No, he still needed to pray. Even though he knew that was God's will, he still needed to pray, and he still needed to pray earnestly. We also have the revealed word of God, do we not? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know for sure whether it's going to snow, whether it's going to rain. But a basis of our prayer is God's word too. Elijah's prayer was based on revelation of God. And we have the revelation of God, do we not? The same basis of his prayer is the basis of our prayer. Now we don't necessarily have specific knowledge about certain human events. But we, don't, we do know, based on the scriptures, things like God will never leave or forsake his children. Does that mean we don't need to pray for him to protect us in different situations? We do. The basis of our confidence in God answering the prayer is based on what he's already revealed. Just like Elijah. Do we know that God is working to send laborers into his harvest? Is he going to send people out to share the gospel and reach people around the world? Yes. But we need to pray for that. Prayer is God's appointed means to do much of the work he's planning to do. And we need to be involved in that work. And our work is to pray. Now, in conclusion, I'll just draw together, I think, a few elements to explain how God answers prayer and what's involved based on what we see here in James. I think, number one, what we saw is it takes a prayer of faith. We need to pray believing that God is able to do what we're asking. And, as we understand, he also delights to do it. So prayer takes faith. I believe prayer also takes persistence. He says, seek and you shall find, knock and and it shall be opened to you, ask and you shall receive, right? But the idea is that of to continue asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. We need to be persistent in prayer. And it also needs to be prayer by a righteous person, someone who has been forgiven of their sins, who has trusted Christ, has access, therefore, to the throne room of God, and has confessed known obvious sins that would be in the way of prayers being answered. But fourthly, and this is where we may struggle, is that prayer needs to also be in alignment with the will of God. We have some general principles that tell us the kinds of things that God is doing and intends to do and how we need to pray but we don't know necessarily what he is or isn't going to do. But that's part of our submission to him in our prayers is that we essentially pray in the manner like saying, if the Lord wills, or if you will, Lord, we're we're praying this. Ultimately, all of our prayer is subject to the will of God. But the encouragement from this passage is that we as individuals need to pray. We need to communicate with God on a regular basis. But we also need to be praying for one another. We need to intercede for one another, praying when we're sick, when we're experiencing trouble, difficulty, hardship. Uh, We need to pray for one another, and we are encouraged about the impact of prayer and the illustration of answered prayer here here with Elijah. The the purpose, the, the challenge of this passage is that we should pray, and that we should pray frequently. Now, if we could for a moment just compare prayer to that of like a farmer sowing seed or planting crops. Imagine with me if a farmer had 100 acres of land set aside for the purpose of growing crops. They're plowed, and yet the farmer decides to only plant 10 acres worth of crops. What, what would you think about that farmer? They're lazy, they're wasteful, foolish, arrogant, right? Perhaps the, that 10 is going to be enough and you don't need more. Isn't it true we could say we're like that farmer when it comes to our prayers? We need to be abundant in praying, scattering much seed, much prayer requests, many things, asking God, not just going through the daily routine of praying for the five or ten people on our list. We need to do that, and it's good to have lists, but we need to go beyond that. We need to be aggressive and eager in going to God in all circumstances, whether we're down or whether we're up. We need to talk to our Lord And we need to be actively, aggressively seeking him that he would work on the behalf of other people. But I think often we're like that farmer that doesn't plant all the seed, doesn't fill all the ground. We all could grow in our prayer life. Let's seek to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge here, this last test of prayer. Father, it's one of those things we could all beat ourselves up for easily because none of us are perfect and and praying all the time like we should. Help us, Father, to grow. Help us to be more aggressive. Encourage our faith, Father. Many times I think that's, that's a problem I face and I believe others do as well. We're discouraged or we think you're not going to act, or you're not going to act soon enough, and, and we get discouraged. Help us, Father, to be aggressive. Help us to pray in faith, knowing that you delight to hear from us, you delight to answer, and prayer is what you've appointed as a means for doing much of this work. Help us, Father, not to be slack in it, but help us to be diligent and hardworking, and to be men and women of faith, earnestly praying to see you work.